everyone. Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Clark Fredericks. This one is going to be different from my other ones because this man actually plays multiple roles in this case. I know that all my episodes are heavy, but this one includes sexual assault of a child, so if that is too much for you to hear about or handle, I completely understand and I will see you next week. Today's terrifying tidbit is actually a collection of disturbing bits of information. According to NJ.gov, the average age of a child sex abuse victim is 10.9 years old, and the average age of all child sex abuse victims in New Jersey is 7.8 years old. Some of the signs of child abuse are changes in behavior, fear of going home, and risk-taking behavior. 80% of child sex abuse cases are not reported to the authorities in New Jersey, and this is doubly terrible because sexual abuse cases are the most likely to be substantiated and held up in court compared to other types of abuse. Although children's parents are the most likely to be a child's abuser, family, friends, and relatives are the second most likely to abuse a child, and that is the scenario we will be talking about today. The setting of our story today is Stillwater, a small town in Sussex County close to the Pennsylvania border in the north. It's very rural and has been described as a very close-knit town with a population a little under 4,000. It's the type of place where everybody knows everybody. 93% of people own their homes and it's a safe town for families with good schools. There's very little to no crime here, which is why our case today was so shocking to the community on multiple levels. Clark Fredericks was a bright child in his youth. He worked hard in school, he played sports, and he was a member of the Boy Scouts. Along with his brother, Joseph, and his sister, Holly, Clark seemed to have a very simple, traditional 1970s upbringing with a loving family. A man named Dennis Pegg, who worked as a corrections officer, was Clark's scout leader, and he became a very close family friend. Dennis had previously worked as a sheriff's officer, so he was in good standing with the police department. He never married or had any children, but as I stated before, he worked with the Boy Scouts, the American Legion, and the Audubon Society. Local families felt comfortable around Dennis because he was so involved in the community, and he just seemed like a wholesome guy. To the Fredericks, he was part of the family. He would come over for dinner on many occasions and visit for holidays. Clark couldn't remember a time when Dennis wasn't a part of his family. Anyway, Clark grows up and attends Northeastern University in Boston and graduates with honors. But after that, he begins to lose his way. In his late 20s, he left a very well-paying job on Wall Street to sell tires with his brother. People in the community were confused because Clark seemed to have and meet very high aspirations. They felt bad that he had essentially given up all that he had worked for. Clark was also drinking a lot and abusing drugs. People couldn't understand why his life had taken such a dark turn. On June 13th, 2012 at 12 p.m., a welfare check was called to Dennis Pegg's residence. There was blood all over the door and outside the door on the ground. Police didn't even have to step inside to immediately know that something horrific had just happened. They find 68-year-old Dennis wearing a bathrobe and slippers lying face up in a pool of blood right in front of the door, which was unlocked. The TV was even still on. The scene was clearly not a theft or a burglary because it had none of the signs of one. Nothing looked like it was ransacked, no open drawers. This was obviously a personal targeted attack. His throat was slit almost to the spine and he had seven to eight stab wounds in his chest and back. But who would attack Dennis? Everyone in the town loved him. He lived alone and no one in the neighborhood heard or saw anything. The police really had to dig into the evidence at the scene. There was a substantial amount of blood and a footprint in the blood that went from Dennis's body over to a bedroom. On the other side of town, about 10 hours prior, a crisis was occurring at the Fredericks' home. Clark's mother found him injured and bleeding in the basement of her home at two o'clock in the morning. Clark told her what he did. He had just murdered Dennis Pegg. He then took a bunch of pills to try to go to sleep. 
His mother tells Holly, who was mortified and told her counselor the next day. Her counselor, Diane, was the one who called for the wellness check on Dennis. The police follow up with Diane to find out how she knew something had happened to Dennis, and then the truth had to come out. Holly felt partially responsible for Clark's arrest, but that's arguably some of the most traumatic news you can hear about someone you love, and it makes sense that you would tell your therapist about it. Clark surrendered peacefully, even with a barrage of guns pointed at him. He reiterated to the detectives that he killed Dennis and that he had it coming. Police knew what happened, but they couldn't wrap their minds around why Clark would kill a family friend and a beloved member of the community. Clark did not randomly decide to murder Dennis that day. The first disturbing interaction between the two men occurred when Clark was just seven years old. When Clark was six, he had open heart surgery and ended up with a scar on his chest, which his parents liked to show off to their friends. Whenever he would show it, the friends would give Clark a quarter. Today, that seems so weird. Here, son, lift up your shirt so my friends can give you money. But in the 70s, maybe it wasn't so odd? One day, when Clark was seven, Dennis came over when everyone else was gone. He said to Clark, I got a quarter to see your scar. Then he said, if you give me a dollar, will you let me touch it? Clark says, okay, because he's a child and he trusts this man. As you can imagine, it just goes downhill from there. Dennis was giving him alcohol at nine, then was participating in wrestling matches with him, and then just worse and worse until Clark was about 12 years old. Clark said that Dennis took his whole life from him. As a result, Clark just began spiraling. He became an alcoholic and a drug abuser to numb out the unending anguish he faced on a daily basis. For a long time, he could not remove the memories of Dennis's abuse from the front of his mind. He could barely function because of the immense trauma that had been bestowed upon him at such a young age. Clark began sabotaging everything in his life. He ruined every career. He went from addiction to addiction. Shame and fear kept him silent for decades as his life fell apart piece by piece. Clark left that day on June 13th just to get out of the house. He came back home to meet up with a friend, Bob Reynolds, who was going to do some work on the house for him. He and Clark had been friends for about 10 years. Bob would do odd jobs for some cash, and he was basically just a party guy who floated from gig to gig to get by. He claimed he went by Clark's just to drop off some tools, but once they got to drinking and doing cocaine, Clark was getting increasingly more upset. He said he wanted to go to the house of someone who had screwed him out of $50,000. Bob remarked, that guy's going to be number one on your hit list then. The mood in the room suddenly turned really cold. Clark responded, no, he's number two. The guy who raped me as a kid is number one. This was the first time Clark had said it out loud. He said that he was so depressed that it just came out. Bob was floored by this admission and asked where the guy lived. And Clark said, I imagine he's still at the house he raped me in. Bob was just like, let's go get him. Clark wasn't sure what that meant, but it definitely intrigued him. So the two men hopped into Bob's van and hightailed it to the home of Dennis Pegg. The two parked in the driveway at 9.30 p.m. and Clark ran up to the house and the door was unlocked. He ripped open the storm door, holding a knife. Peg was sitting on the couch watching TV. He said while looking over his shoulder, Hey, how are you? This response absolutely floored Clark. How could Dennis have reacted so calmly to seeing Clark burst into his home after all he had put him through? This man clearly had no remorse for the abuse and trauma he had inflicted upon such a young child. Clark just screamed expletives, ran across the room, and attacked Dennis. A struggle ensued. Everybody was beating everywhere. Everyone was getting stabbed. Clark then leans down and says, It's not so fun raping little boys now, is it? 
and then slit Dennis's throat. The two fled the scene and went back to Clark's house. Clark invited a friend and a woman he was dating at the time over so that he could say goodbye because he knew where he was going to go. Then he told his mom everything that happened and then his mom told his sister what happened and she was in shock and couldn't process it. As I mentioned before, Dennis was very close with the family. He was over all the time. When he had gotten to a car accident back in the day, the family took him in so they could take care of him while he recovered. Nobody in the Fredericks family knew the abuse happened until Clark killed Dennis. But then it all made sense why he was living his life the way he was. This claim was going to demolish Dennis's reputation in the town. However, moving on to the investigation of the case, it became clear that Clark was not the only victim of Dennis's abuse. Other people began calling Clark's attorney in the county prosecutor's office and the state police. Their stories were eerily similar to Clark's. They all fit a similar narrative of being vulnerable young boys when Dennis attacked them. Although Dennis's friends vehemently denied the accusations, once the police investigated deeper, they felt comfortable believing what Clark and the others had alleged. Cybercrime detectives found gigs and gigs of child porn on Dennis's computer, as well as accounts on those websites. These websites did not only offer videos and images, but they also featured forums for other sickos to chat about their desires and meet up with each other. The authorities also learned that he had been sexually assaulting inmates when he worked as a corrections officer at the prison. And accusations had been made against Dennis before, back in the early 80s. Police didn't know exactly what happened in these specific cases because the statute of limitations had expired on those accusations by the time this case rolled around. What they did know was that mothers would bring their sons and file a complaint, but then the dads would come and take back the complaint because they didn't want their sons to be seen as gay. I'd really like to hope that we've evolved past thinking any kind of sexual assault denotes a victim's sexuality. Crime should be reported regardless of how some weirdos might interpret the victim's identity. And these accusations weren't happening in a vacuum, so they led to rumors that swirled through Newton and surrounding towns. Clark's dad caught wind of the rumors, so he asked if Dennis had ever touched him. And Clark denied it. To this day, he says that's his biggest regret. But no one should blame themselves for not being able to push past trauma and societal obligations or expectations to report a crime, especially if it occurred when they were children. Dennis threatened all of his victims with violence, and they were kids as well, so they were absolutely terrified. He was in good with all of their parents, so most kids figured that they wouldn't believe them because of that. Tom Walsh, an Andover committeeman, said of Dennis, You always heard the whispers, but he was such a nice guy, you never paid much attention. Public perception of Dennis was quickly splintering. After all this evidence, something nearly unprecedented happened between the prosecution and the defense. They started working together. Both sides decided this dude was an irredeemable piece of crap, so they put their energy towards unveiling the truth about Dennis Pegg. The prosecutors contacted a forensic psychologist named Lewis Schlesinger to figure out what the appropriate charges would be for someone who went through something so horrific. Many studies have shown that your mind actually alters after experiencing something really traumatic. Lewis ran a bunch of psychological tests on Clark, and he found that Clark had deep feelings of inadequacy. He saw himself as weak for not being able to stand up to Dennis, and failing to expose his abuser sooner to protect future victims. When Lewis looked at all the stressors Clark had been struggling with, he found that his behavior fit the passion provocation defense. The passion provocation defense is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Passion emotions can provoke a strong reaction, like killing. The person would not be able to have time to cool off and collect themselves after the event that upset them for the passion provocation offense to really work. Even if something happened to you a long time ago, something can happen that triggers that abuse. 
Around a year prior to the incident, Clark had actually run into Dennis at a deli in town. Dennis had a middle school aged boy with him and overwhelming guilt and disgust ripped through Clark's system. This was the first time he saw Dennis in years and he instantly had a panic attack and ran out of the deli. His emotions were raw once again. He now had Dennis back in the forefront of his mind. In 2012, the Jerry Sandusky case was breaking news and it was on every major news station. Jerry Sandusky was the Penn State football coach and it it was a similar situation to Dennis of an older man with authorities sexually abusing children. Clark killed Dennis the same day this case hit the public. He felt like Dennis would never be stopped, so he had to do something. It took detectives three years to conduct the investigations. Clark was offered a plea to a manslaughter deal. The judge could sentence him between five and ten years, and Clark took the deal. On December 10th, 2015, he asked for leniency at the sentencing hearing. He spoke of how his misery was just eating him alive. It was like a cancer metastasizing inside of him. Clark was sentenced to the minimum five years for second-degree manslaughter, including the time he had already served. The judge said that he would have loved to set him free, but he can't encourage other people to do what Clark did. He apologized for making him spend any more time in a prison than he had already spent. But by this point, Clark only had a year and a half left to serve. Bob Reynolds, you remember, his friend, tried to say that he just stood by the front door, but police weren't buying that because of the way the blood was, you know, splattered on his clothing. So about seven months after Clark was sentenced, Bob pled guilty to a third degree count of burglary and another for hindering in July of 2016. Bob was sentenced the next month to serve three and a half years in prison. He was given credit for 461 days for time served and has since been released from prison. Dennis's reputation had been certainly decimated. The community wasn't even mad at Clark after all the disgusting things that Dennis had done came out. In fact, they largely supported Clark, especially in his recovery, and they could understand how and why he snapped that day. Clark felt like his healing actually began in prison because he had finally gotten the closure he needed. He killed Dennis so he knew that he could never hurt anyone else ever again. Clark felt like he received the appropriate punishment by going to jail and he was finishing it up fairly quickly. On December 30th, 2016, after four and a half years of the five-year sentence, Clark Fredericks was released on parole. In the years since his release, Clark has been sober and he has become a motivational speaker and advocate for survivors of sexual assault. He even testified before the New Jersey State Legislature to change the statute of limitations on child sex abuse crimes. It can take decades before someone gathers a confidence to come forward about something abhorrent that happened to them in their youth. Clark feels remorse, not necessarily for killing Dennis, but because he was just so broken and didn't speak up sooner. It didn't have to come to murder, but due to the statute of limitations inspiring on the crimes committed, he couldn't really take a legal route to achieve any justice. Clark now tours the country speaking about his experiences and encourages other survivors to speak up as well. He's spoken to universities, fundraisers, the NJ Capitol building, and even prisons. He also offers an open line of communication for other child sex abuse survivors. On his website, he writes, Because of my raw and brutally honest openness, people across the country are now reaching out to me for support and advice. And I don't plan to end this crusade for victims until those in a position do something about it and are willing to start a conversation about an epidemic that affects children across the country. He also includes pictures of himself at ages 7, 9, and 12 to really exemplify how young and innocent he was when Dennis was abusing him. He says below the images, I was threatened and made to believe that I was never allowed to speak about this and it prompted fear, shame, and loathing that forced that secret to remain silent within me. Keeping this secret will become my biggest regret. Don't make the same mistake I did. Speak up now and seek help. Clark continues to make positive impacts on people's lives with his work. 
The tagline on his website reads, From darkness there is light. No more secrets. First off, I am so happy that Clark was able to turn his life around and turn his pain into purpose. That is an incredibly difficult feat, and it's amazing that he's able to connect with others who share his struggles and make everyone more aware of what victims go through. That's awesome. One thing that you guys will learn about me is that I'm not necessarily the most unwavering moral compass. Most of the time I believe that people are redeemable. You may do something kind of messed up, but you can come back from it and renounce your old ways. Dennis Pegg violently abused children, and he got away with it because he intentionally got close to their parents to erase any suspicions of him. It was no coincidence that he was a Boy Scout leader. He also molested prison inmates over whom he had power and whom he knew would never be able to wage a complaint against him. I agree with Clark. He got what he had coming to him. The fact that he essentially took away Clark's life and probably many other children's lives, and he was so blasé about it when he was confronted at the end of his life, I think that just says everything we need to know about Dennis Pegg. He probably never thought he'd experience an ounce of retribution. Taking away a child's innocence is an unforgivable act. In my opinion, people like this have no place in society. Because gathering enough evidence to prove sexual assault is both traumatizing and incredibly difficult, many abusers are never brought to justice. Obviously, you do not have to agree with me. A lifetime in prison, especially at the one he used to work at, could have been the torturous end he deserved. But alas, we'll never know. I'm also really happy with how Clark's sentencing went. It's really bothersome that you just have to sit there and be abused and the onus is put on you to prove something in court, and if you can't, you just have to keep being abused. There is no recourse for you. I understand that Clark had to be punished in accordance with the law, you know, lest we open up a slippery slope of getting away with murder because of some, you know, special extenuating circumstances, but the fact that he got the minimum sentence he could have received was probably as fair as it possibly could have been. Clark gained something from his prison sentence, and he didn't leave it up to chance whether Dennis Pegg would continue abusing other young boys and people under his watch. I personally believe justice was served all around. Oh, and I also had this much hate and vitriol towards Heather Reynolds, who never allowed her son to grow up and have a life of his own. Reminder, everyone, children are people. They're not toys, burdens, or anything in between. Even if you don't like kids, they are human beings with feelings, interests, dreams, and rights, just like you and everyone else. They deserve none of the ugliness and the cruelty that's so present in this world. But anyway, that's all from me today. Please check out Clark's website at clarkfredericks.com or his interview with Soft White Underbelly so you can learn more about his life and what he's done for the community. Don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I'll see you all next week. Goodbye!